All right, all right, here we go. How are y'all doing today? Hopefully you're doing good. Welcome to Village Church. If you are new, a special welcome to you. Uh, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Good to have you across all of our sites. Open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 11. We are in the book of Psalms. We're doing a series uh, called Psalms. Uh, we, we had to get the creative team together for that and work for about a month uh, to come up with that title. And we're doing book one. That was a joke. Uh, book one, chapter one to 41. And so that's what this series is. And last week we hit Psalm chapter 11 and I tried to do the whole thing, uh, but I didn't get to the whole thing. So we did the first three verses. So now we're going to pick it up and finish chapter 11. We'll see if we can hit a couple verses in 12, but probably not, to be honest. So it should be short. I mean, all I need to do is finish chapter 11. Boom! Easy task. Here we go. All right. So we're glad you're here. Um, man, we're in the midst of a season of Village Church. It's so exciting. We are doing a campaign, uh, Bigger Than Us Village 2021 campaign, where we are raising $30 million to finally, we got a piece of land. Uh, a year ago uh, for $10 million, you gave that generously. Now we're doing $30 million, and every single one of us is on board. And now it is past the pledge time. And so now your pledges begin. All right. We have spent the month praying, examining, discussing. And so now for the next bunch of weeks, uh, for the next month, two months, we are going to hear from you about, hey, look, this is what I think I can give over the next two or three years to Village Church. And that's what we want to do. It doesn't have to come in right away. It doesn't, I know you got things you're trying to work on. Well, if that comes in and then that comes in, great, awesome. We need to hear it because we need to plan accordingly and say, okay, this is when we can start building. So please get your pledge in. I know people have started pledging already. That's awesome. But now it's on. The light switch is on and now it's time to go, okay, Lord, how do I get generous? How do I be sacrificial so that we can actually get this building done and get the mission going? We have so many crazy things going on. I was talking to someone um, this week and uh, Gord and a couple other guys we were chatting and there's people coming out of the woodwork to plant churches across Canada at such a time as this. We have this very specific moment where we have an opportunity as a church to do this thing so people meet Jesus. We're talking about the fact of uh, Canada being made up of all kinds of different languages. And we're exploring how we can actually start to interpret uh, village church sermons and services into different languages in order because the technology is there. So we've started going down the line of what does it look like to translate into Korean, into Mandarin, into Spanish, because Canada is made up of into French, right? Because Canada is made up of all kinds. And so we have this ability because the way that we do our church, where we do video and we do cinema sites and we do different sites um, with, with video sermons and so on to actually do languages. And so we're starting to explore. The world is opening up because of technology and innovation in ways you can never dream of. And this is all part of what we want to be able to do with this building as well. This moment that God has given to us, it's honestly amazing. And uh, so anyway, so pledges are on. Let's go. Let's give. And let's let us know what you're going to give. It's honestly an amazing thing. And it's rooted right out of this psalm. It's very natural because the psalm is looking at us, as we talked about last week, and going, hey, what are the things you build your life on? Some of you build your life on money. Ergo, when people say, hey, look, Jesus gave up all the riches in the world and died for you, you gotta let go of money a little bit. You hold on to it too tightly. Some of you, that's a challenge. Psalm 1 was all about foundations. What if the foundations get destroyed? As we said, what if you build your whole joy and life and meaning and purpose on your spouse and your spouse dies? What if you do that on your reputation? 
and your reputation goes away? What if you do that on money and the money disappears? What if you do that on your marriage? What if you do that on your kids and your kids walk away from you? What happens, he says, when the foundations get destroyed? What do you do with your life? And he's going to now give an answer, right? All of us try to build our life on different things. And now he's going to give an answer. And he's going to say, you got to, as we said last week, you got to build your life on the thing that transcends all things. You got to build your life founded on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Now the question is why? Because you're here at church, I get it. You're like, well, of course, I'm at church. You're gonna tell me that Jesus, you know, is the purpose of everything. And, but the reality is, we're kind of a church for people who aren't into church a little bit. Like, why? So we wanna be able to answer that question. Why is it important that Jesus Christ becomes your foundation versus anything else? And there's a lot of Christians who couldn't answer that question. There's a lot of Christians, if you sat down with them and said, I know you're telling me to found my life on Jesus, but I don't know why. Here's what this psalm begins to do. It begins to actually unpack the why. All right, so verse three, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do, he says. Then he says this, verse four, the first part of an answer. He says this, the Lord is in his holy temple. So there's, there's an assumption uh, among us. There's an assumption in the Bible that no other foundation actually works for your life. No other foundation is going to actually give you meaning and purpose other than God, which is why he keeps pointing us toward God. I was reading a book this week called The Decadent Society. The Decadent Society. What the writer's talking about is the fact that you and me are living in the most decadent society. We have more money, more time, more energy. You could literally accomplish anything in your life. If you have some kind of obsession with sexuality, you can just go on an app, go on Tinder, and just sleep with different people every day. If you want to become famous, you could literally become a multi- billionaire by using apps on your phone. If you want to have a reputation, if you want to have influence, there's people throughout history who've written books and a tweet on a Twitter account will reach more people today than most people who have written books have ever reached in the history of time. Like being able to write a book and say, I'm going to influence people's minds. One, there's people who have 170 million Twitter followers. Instagram followers, the influence we can have, the reputation, the fame, the money. It's, listen, the middle-class people function uh, today like rich people used to function, right? If, I, if my grandparents wanted to go on a vacation, here's what they would have to do. And I know this is crazy, guys. Millennials, listen up. They had to have the money. <laughs> That's nuts, right? Like if they wanted to go on a vacation... And they went, my gosh, it's going to cost, by the time we get to Hawaii, stay at a place, blah, blah, it's going to cost five grand, 10 grand, 15 grand, whatever it is. Okay, uh, let's start saving. And they would start saving in like 1978. And by 1988 or something, they'd go, okay, we have enough money. That's not how my generation works, right? We're just sitting around chatting with friends and be like, hey, you want to go to Hawaii? Sure, swipe it. Right? It's like, do you have the money? No, I'm sure I'll get it someday. That's how we work. The, 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 the poor, the middle class function. Like, okay, there was this very interesting question. I was listening to a, a podcast recently, and the guy said this. For all the people beating up kind of Western culture or whatever, he said, what if, okay, here's the deal. Okay, this is an interesting question. I just thought of this. Okay, here's the deal. Okay, I want, I want all of you to sit and think about this. Um, I can give you... Uh, Rockefeller's amount of money. So Rockefeller was this big steel industrial guy. You've heard that name, Rockefeller Center, New York. One of the richest men who's ever lived in the history of time. Okay, Rockefeller. So he had, you know, equivalent to billions and billions of dollars, maybe trillions, all right, in, in today's money. Now, uh, Rockefeller, uh, I can give you his money. But the problem is, 
You have to live when he lived. Meaning whatever it was, 200 years ago. So here's the question. Would you take Rockefeller's money if you had to live when he lived? Because here's the thing. You don't want to get a toothache. You don't want to get the flu. You don't want to have to get surgery. Because you know what surgery looked like back then? Here's a shot of whiskey and a stick. We're going to cut your, you open now and give you heart surgery. You're just biting on a stick. Right? The reality is, so you've got to live way back then where you don't want to get any kind of trouble in life, where the average lifespan was, all of these things. The reality is we have it so good, so good, and here's what it's done to us. Here's what the argument of the book is. There's a rise of personal crisis. There's a rise in anxiety. There's a rise in depression. There's a lot rise in isolation. There's a rise in obesity. In fact, what he said was this. Mental health issues, loneliness, IQ levels are dropping. Here's a profile of our culture. Bullying is on the increase. Addictions are on the increase. Obesity is on the increase. And then he says this. Here's a crazy, you want to hear a crazy stat? Life expectancy in the UK and the US has declined over the last three years. Isn't that fascinating? Life expectancy has declined in the UK and the US over the last three years. And into all of that hopelessness, into all of that, what are we gonna do as a society? What am I gonna build my life on? Um, I have all the money in the world, all the fame in the world, all the influence in the world, all the comfort in the world, and I don't know what I live for. And into that confusion, into that chaos, comes 11 verse 4. What am I going to do with my life? What am I going to build my life on? He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Listen to this. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. If you've got a Bible, his eyes see. Can I just tell you something? In the midst of um, the chaos and the loneliness and the isolation and the bullying and the IQ drops and the depression and the suicide rates and the life expectancy rates, all of that in the Western world because we have it all. Can I just tell you something that maybe you need to hear? God sees you. That's simple, right? But some of you need to hear it. You are unique. He sees you. He, because some of you feel like, like he sees. That's fascinating. He sees you. He made you in his image. No matter how you look, no matter how you feel about yourself, he sees you. He's, he's got eyes that see you. And here's what's fascinating about him. You and I begin to think that he doesn't see us because the world, there's so much going on. So there's like, there's tsunamis over here or there's coronavirus or there's all of these things in life. There's just lots of people for God to worry about. And just like you do in a social setting, where there's a lot of people in the room, ergo, these people must not see me. I must be lost in the mix. All of that. Here you get a word where he goes, he actually sees you. Spurgeon put it this way. God sees as if there were no other creatures in the universe. That's beautiful. God sees you as if there's no other. Now think about that for a second because it gets a little funny because you think that God doesn't see that thing you do. God doesn't do this. It's kind of like my dog right now. Like I was saying last week, me and my family, the family's gone. It's just me and my dog. And here's what's weird about it. In the silence... In the chaos of a house, I begin to just feel unwatched. It's like kids are running around, wife's running around with things to do. But when it's just me and the dog, 
You know what the dog does? He just sits there and looks at me like this. And then I go like this. I'm like, okay. I'm like reading and it's creeping me out, right? So then I'm like, okay, I put my book down and I go into the kitchen. And you know what she does? She follows me, follows me around. And I'm, it's creeping me out, right? Because I'm like getting in the shower, brushing my teeth and the dog's sitting there. I'm like, what do you want from me? It's weird that you keep following me around. She jumps up on the bed seven o'clock every morning, licking my face, waking me up. Please go away. Right? I know some of you are like, why would you treat your dog like that? I'm tired. But the thing is, this dog constantly follows me around everywhere. And it's, it's like, it's, it, this is what he's saying. God, you don't get to, just because there's lots of people, lots of things, lots of chaos, lots going on in the world, God still sees you. It's like you're laying in bed and you wake up and you know how creepy it would be to have someone just staring at you, sitting beside your bed. And then you go into the bathroom and they follow you and they're standing there. That's God. <laughs> right? He sees you. He sees everything you do. He sees everything. He knows everything you think. Every desire you've got. Every moment of sin. Every good thing you've ever done. He sees. And if you wonder, this text just said, listen, when, when, when you're wondering to yourself what you're going to build your life on, build it on the God who sees you. I was watching uh, the movie about Mr. Rogers, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, and there's this scene, and if you haven't seen it with Tom Hanks, where he's sitting across from this guy who's got a total wreck of a life with his dad, and he looks at Mr. Rogers and he goes, um, so-and-so was right, you love people like me, and meaning broken people. And Mr. Rogers looks at him and he goes, Listen to this. this. This almost made me cry. I don't know anybody like you. I've never met anyone like you in my life. Meaning, you're actually so unique and special to God that he sees you. He cares about you. He loves you. He wants you to do great things. He's for you. And this is what it's saying. Now, you think you're not good enough. You think you don't know Mark, okay, he sees me, okay? Um, here's what he sees. He sees what I looked at last night. He sees the hate that I gave to somebody. He sees the gossip that I laid down. He sees the pain I caused these people. He saw me cheat. He saw me lie. That's what he sees. And your filter is God sees the bad and he sees the bad and he sees the bad. But let me blow your mind for a second. I want you to cherish the beauty of the gospel here. Um, do you know... That, that he sees all of those things that you do and he still sent his son to die for you. Just take that in for a second because some of you are here and you don't believe in the grace. You don't believe that you're seen and if you're seen, you're terrified of what is seen because it's bad. It's, it's rotten, it's sinful, it's depraved, it's messed up, it's narcissistic. Yes, it is. And yet, he still sent Jesus. Like, listen, I was listening to um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell the other day, and he was talking about this, this fascinating um, uh, uh, research study that was done. They took a bunch of American university students and a bunch of Korean university students, and they put them in different rooms, and they said this, and they said, um, okay, they gave them three discs, Okay? And they wrote, they said, write down past, present, and future 
on the three discs, the past, present, future, and to all the American students that said, okay, now um, lay them out like you would lay them out to represent past, present, future, like time. And so all the American students uh, laid them out and they went past, present, future, right? That's how, okay, great, they collected them, went. All the Korean students wrote past, present, future, and they didn't lay them down like this. They stacked them, one on top of the other. And sociologists are trying to figure out whether, now, not to blow our minds for a sec, whether there's literally people interpret time different, the way your brain works, the way cultures think about time, that some cultures actually may think, like to a Korean mind, it may be that like the Revolutionary War was in the past, like yesterday was in the past, and it's all kind of time begins. Now, my point in saying that is, now think about when God sends his son to die for you, when does he do it? He lives outside of time. He already knows all that stuff you're gonna look at. He already knows all the gossip all the pain you're gonna cause everybody. He already knew it and he still sent Jesus to die for you. Believe it. Take it in and receive the forgiveness because some of you are too hard on yourselves and you won't receive the fact that you are seen. And so I'm telling you this because some of you have built your life on different foundations and, you, and, and what we said last week is you have to build it on Jesus. Here's the why question. Because no other thing will work. You tried money, you tried fame, you're still empty. Our culture has tried all these things and has failed. Two, you are seen by him. He loves you. You are beloved. You are made in his image. Three, then, it answers this beautiful question. Look at verse four. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. It's saying, in order to have this meaningful life and build your life on the proper foundation, you got to realize the God that you're getting. He's in complete control of everything. He rules everything. He is sovereign over everything. He is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Literally, God is sovereign over all things. Ephesians 1 gives the great image of Jesus, takes the universe, and he walks it from one place to the next. God is in total control, meaning whatever tragedy happens in your life, God is still on the throne. Do you believe that? You've got to believe that because if you don't, there is no reason to wake up in the morning. You won't be able to do it. He's, look at, he's in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. What did they just come from? They just came from uh, flee like a bird to your mountain. The wicked bend the bow. They have fitted the arrow to the string to shoot you in the dark. The foundations are destroyed. Life is chaotic. Life sucks. Things are falling apart. Here's what you need to do. Here's what your worldview should do. Drive you out into the mountains and give up on life. And he pivots and goes, no, 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 no. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. He's in complete sovereign control. Not a sparrow, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, falls to the ground without the Father knowing about it. Not one thing happens in your life without the Father knowing about it. This is the reality. God is saying to us, I'm in control of all things. I am reigning. I am ruling. Um, let me tell you why this matters. Because I think, you know, they say 70% of people go to the doctor 
And the reason they go to those doctor visits is ultimately because of anxiety issues in our life. 70% of the Western world ends up at the doctor because of stuff connected to anxiety. I think you have anxiety in your life because you don't believe verse four. Check it, right? He's in heaven. He's in control, which means who isn't? You. In, uh, in the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther was going up against the Catholic Church. It's the 1500s. He's going up against it. He's saying the theology's off. Pounds his 95 theses against the door, Wittenberg door. Uh, revolution starts. We're, you know, we're a Protestant church. That's a protest, right? That's what, that's what the idea is. So Martin Luther says, hey, listen, there's this, there's this, there's this. We're going to come against him. And there's a movement that starts. He has this uh, companion, his buddy, Philip Melanchthon. And he was a scholar and he was really jacked up and he was terrified that if the Catholic Church found Martin Luther, they're going to burn him, they're going to put him on trial and the movement was going to go away. And he would come in and he'd be anxious and he'd be terrified and he'd say this, 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 this. And here's the line that Martin Luther used to look at Philip and say. He'd say this, and I say this to you. Let Philip cease to rule the world. You're anxious. What are my kids going to do? Where's the money going to come from? I don't understand what's going to happen with my job. I don't think, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think. Let Philip cease to rule the world. You don't rule the world. God is in his holy temple. The Lord is in heaven. He is enthroned. He's the one in control, which means chill. Can everyone just chill? Like everyone's social media, everyone's so jacked up, right? You're afraid of everything. You're afraid you're going to get the coronavirus just by coming to church today. Guarantee you thought about it. <laughs> right? Yeah, you're clapping. Right? Embrace it. You thought that. All right? If I go on a church, I'm going to get the, I don't know what the coronavirus is, but there's, they did a, they did a, they did a thing in the U.S. 38% of the people aren't drinking Corona beer because they think it's connected. <laughs> I love you Americans. I love you guys. You're awesome but you don't look into stuff. <laughs> you guys think you're, you're, you're terrified. Everything's terrible. The world's terrible. It's going to end. It's going to end. Oh my gosh. Philip, cease to rule. The reality is he's in control of all things. Because if he's not, if when bad things happen to you, which we're going to talk about in a second, why they do, if they happen to you because God's not in control, it's either God's not in control and you're smarter than him and nobody's at the steering wheel or God is a villain. Those are your two options. If you don't believe in God, then there's no reason to get mad at all the bad things that happen in the world that when the foundations are destroyed and you put God on trial, maybe you're here and that's your thing. There's too many bad things in the world for me to believe in God. Listen, if there's no God, then why do you even care about injustice? There's, you don't even have a category called injustice in which to put God on trial if you are not an objective moral being. If we are just animals, then there is no injustice. You have no category of which to put God on trial. So either there is a God and you're mad at him because things aren't going your way, but that's to not understand that he's smarter than you on his worst day, by the way. Or he's a villain and he's twisting his mustache and he just loves when bad things happen to everybody. Those are your options. And he's about to give a different answer altogether. See, here's what he's going to do. You ever wonder why bad things happen to good people? 
You ever wonder why there's pain in your life, why your life's not perfect? This psalm's about to answer it. Verse five. The Lord tests, I want you to underline this word, tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So when, when, when things come into your life, when, 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 when painful things, when things that aren't awesome come into your life, if you're, there's two kinds of people in the world in the end. There's, there's believers in Jesus and there's people who don't believe in Jesus, okay? So what the, what the psalm is saying is when those things happen, there's one of two ways of looking at it. Either it's judgment, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. We can't deny that there is judgment. God is going to judge evil. God is going to judge sin. It doesn't matter what modern thinkers and preachers and writers want to pitch to you so that you'll come to their church and you can like them and like their stuff on social media and say, don't worry, God's not angry anymore. He's just a good guy. He's like an old uncle. He's going around the garden. He likes what you're doing in life. He doesn't have any anger. No, he's going to actually judge the wicked. That's what the text says. Can't get around it. I couldn't, if I got to make up Christianity, I would come up with a whole bunch of crazy stuff. I don't get to though. I have to go do what the Bible says. That's your authority. You are not so smart that you get to make up a religion. I know you think because everybody entitled you as a kid and made you, just built you up so that you had this identity and you thought, you think you're the, you think you're the center of everything, autonomy, self-fulfillment. You know, it's fascinating to me. Do you know, well, I'm a pastor, so I get to listen to people as they talk about coming to church and what they do with church and how they view church. And you know how often it just sounds like a consumeristic person choosing stuff at Walmart? It's like, well, I go to this church because I love the preaching. I go to that church because I like the music. I go to that church because I like the youth program. I go to that church. Shut up! Do you know that throughout history, the church was never used, listen to me, for your self-fulfillment. Never. For the first time in history, the church is being used as a tool for your self-fulfillment so that you feel better about your life, so that you can keep your life on track. Never through history was that the case. The church was the place where you sacrificed yourself for and in the context of for the sake of the world. You don't get to just take. That's not the way it is. And so God, he's, you don't get to just create religion where you can choose from it whatever you want, whatever pleases me, whatever makes my life better. I'm going to say this, here we have a God of judgment. And when bad stuff happens in life, sometimes it's God's judgment in the present or in the future against people who may not believe in Jesus, okay? That happens in this world. Now, it's not all the time, but he's saying there are times when this is what God's doing. Now, it's to humble them. It's to make them wake up. Now, what is it in a believer's life, though? What does he say? Say this word out loud. The Lord what? Oh, my gosh. I quit. Come on. Ron was the only guy who talked. The Lord what? Tests across all of our sites. The Lord what? Tests. Okay, that's crazy. Because here's what he just said. If you are a believer, if you are, look what he says, the righteous, 
When bad stuff comes into your life, it's not because of your sin. It's to test you. It's an exam. And exams suck. Right? Exams are hard. I, used to, I did Greek so that I could teach you guys well. I studied Greek for three years. Greek. So when I get stressed, my Tourette's goes crazy, right? I come up with random habits, ticks. My face goes nuts. I say weird things. I start kissing the air. So <laughs> do you know how bad it was to do Greek exams all through college? My family, hated, my family knew when the Greek exam was coming. I mean, what's for It's like, buddy, go sleep in another room. You got a Greek exam, don't you? My wife's calling the Greek teacher. Can you stop giving him exams? But all that testing did something, didn't it? I can read the New Testament in Greek. I can tell you when something is a pluperfect nominative singular. Right? But I can do that. It made me better. See, tests... In life are exams. Suffering and pain for the Christian is not judgment. It is examination. It is testing to see where your life is going to go. Remember, we talked about the cross is not only the means of salvation, it's the actual shape of our salvation, it's the shape of our lives. They're exams. Bad things come into our life not to kill us. Because for a Christian, dying's not the worst thing in the world. Right? Ask people who are in dreadful, dreadful marriages. I've had them look at me and say these words. There are worse things than dying. And for a Christian, that's absolutely true. Right? If you're here and you're not a Christian, dying is the ultimate pain. It's the ultimate bad thing that could happen in your life. It's over. So you fight against it as, 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 as an instinct. But for a Christian, Paul says in Philippians 1, to die is what? Gain. So dying, according to Christian theology, is not the worst thing that can happen to you. In fact, as we've talked about many times here, Jesus says, if you believe on the resurrection and the life, people who believe in that never die. Meaning, you might like die, like Boom! And then like a billicadrillia gigillisecond later, boom, you're alive. Like there's no actual even half a trillionth of a second where you're actually dead because your life just continues on. That's why those who believe me will never die. That's what he says. So there's worse things than dying, like not being shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. And sometimes that means testing. It just is what it is. There's pain and suffering in this room. There's pain and difficulty in all of our lives. The question is, what is it? I, uh, I was on uh, Instagram the other day and that I was telling you about that little girl, beautiful little girl, uh, Ava, who fell off the golf cart and now she, you know, she's trying to recover. She's at home, but uh, just praying for that there's healing and her parents are like total derailed for the last four months of their life. And uh, I was following his Instagram account and uh, the next picture I saw, other than his daughter, you know, sitting there in this handicapped wheelchair was um, him and his, him, his, his wife sitting in a hospital room. And he's like, great. He was like, here's the latest. We went away for a holiday, me and her, to get four days, five days alone. 
um, away from the chaos of our life for the last four months just to get some alone time because we haven't had any. And within 24 hours, she gets a virus. She's in the hospital. She's laid out for five, six days. They're doing tests on her. They don't know what's going on. Her And he's sitting there Instagramming. And he says, and this guy's a pastor. And he's like, what is this? It seems like sometimes in life, it's just raining. And then when it stops raining, it just pours. And when it stops pouring, the clouds come over and it just starts, and he says, it's like wrenches just start coming out of the sky. You can't escape it. My life just seems to go from one moment of pain and agony and suffering to the next, to the next, to the next. And I have a worldview question, Lord. What is it? What is it? And atheism is going to say, what? Think of your options here. Atheism is going to say, it's bad luck, bro. Religion is going to tell you, you better earn your favor in front of God so that one day maybe you can be saved from all of this. Karma is going to tell you this, you're paying for a sins of a last, a past life, and you better stop those bad things. So what is it for the Christian? Uh, theologian Henry Smith, he says this, you know the life of David in my Devotions right now, I'm going through the life of David for 2 Samuel. You know the life of David? Here's a beautiful image, and it's terrible, from Henry Smith. Listen to this. Some of you need to hear this right now. He says, since we are not in paradise, but in the wilderness, we must look for one trouble after another. As a bear came to David after a lion, and a giant after a bear, and a king after a giant... And Philistines after a king. So when believers have fought poverty, they shall fight infamy. And when they have fought with infamy, they shall fight with sickness. They shall be like a laborer who is never out of work. This is the life of we follow the one who suffered. The one who suffered. You know, you, know, um, you guys have seen The Passion of the Christ movie, I assume. Um, it's very interesting. So, so people think that the passion, the word passion means like that, that movie's about like Jesus, like excitement or his energy. Like he's, he's a passionate Christ. <laughs> um, that's not what it means. The word passion is from the Greek and Latin word to suffer. The passion. So back in the 1500s, the Germans would do passion plays. And what they were, were the plays from Gethsemane onto the cross. Literally the last night, the trials, the beating, the, the flogging, the death of Jesus. That's called the passion of Christ. That's historically what that word means. So when you're watching that movie, the passion of the Christ, you're not, you're not watching a movie about the passion of Jesus. Boy, he's so passionate, isn't he? That's not what it's about. It's about his suffering. That literally half of the gospel of Mark is about the suffering of Jesus, the one who's going to suffer, the one who's going to have pain in his life, the one who's going to have agony and trouble. So this is what happens in our life. And so tests come in, and there's two kinds of tests for the Christian. The one, uh, one writer calls them this, the Jonah test and the Job test. The Jonah test is when God has allowed something to come into your life. It's not that he's bringing it directly, but he allows something in your life. Why? To show Jonah a sin or a character flaw in his life. He hated the Ninevites and it was like, hey, I'm gonna let you get thrown into the water. I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this. Why? To show you a sin or a character flaw in your life. So question number one, when, when pain comes into your life, if it's a test, if it's an exam to make you stronger, is it a Jonah test? 
Meaning, is God trying to show you, he's not punishing you for a sin, but he may be trying to highlight a sin in your life. Because as we're going to talk about, the sin that you have, the reason God doesn't need to punish you for it is why? Come on, you've been around here long enough. Why doesn't God need to punish you for your sin? Because he punished Jesus for you. Right? So now then what is the sin? What is the test? What is this thing that's in your life? It's either a Jonah thing that's trying to show you a character flaw, meaning, man, here's what's going to happen. You've been greedy your whole life. I'm going to allow pain into your life to examine you and test you so that you get less greedy or you get softer or more kind or you stop lying to people. You stop being of this. You stop being of that. Uh, this is what this is meant to do. Or there's a Job test. And a Job test is pain and suffering comes into your life. Of course, Satan goes into the throne room of God and says, can I go after Job? Can I take his money and take his family? Because I guarantee that he won't worship you anymore. Because the only reason he worships you is to get your stuff. He likes the stuff you give him. He loves, he's elevated gift above giver. And so he's built his life on the foundation of good things. And if you take away those things, he won't love you anymore. Sound like us? If you take away the good things, he won't love you anymore because he's going to start wondering to himself, what did I do? And the whole book of Job is asking whether it's a Jonah thing. So his friends are like, what did you do wrong? What did you do wrong? What did you do wrong? The problem is a Jonah test isn't a Job test. You're not looking for some character flaw that needs to be figured out. A Jonah test is something that's after, actually after what did you build your whole life on? See, Satan's partly right. When he goes to the throne room of God, he goes, hey, if I take away his family, I take away his money, I take away his health, he won't worship you. He built his life on a foundation that if you take the foundation away, he won't love you anymore. So in your life as a Christian, when suffering and pain comes into your life, is it a Jonah thing where there's a character flaw and a sin that God's trying to eliminate from your life and make you more into the image of Christ, as Romans 8 says? Or is it a Jonah test that says, I'm actually after the entire foundation of what you've built your life on. It hasn't been the cross. It hasn't been the gospel at all. It's been fame, fortune, pleasure, whatever. And that's why the whole thing ends. And it says, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. That people who don't believe in Jesus, people who haven't accepted the forgiveness of Christ, there is judgment coming for them. I'd like to get around this. I'd like to tell you that we should eliminate the fire and the sulfur. The problem is, this is literally how the Bible talks. And here's the question. People, um, in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, I'll read you a text that actually picks up some of this language. It's very interesting. You know, some people, I remember growing up, I listened to um, uh, Biggie Smalls. Uh, I don't know if you got any hip-hop fans out there. What's up? Hypnotize. Huh? So, um, lyrical thesis, we top building, look on top. All right, so, um, but he had this crazy, he had this crazy song where he talked about um, if, if hell, if hell's where all my buddies went, then that's where I want to go. Like hell's filled with all the partiers. Hell's filled with all the interesting people. Heaven's going to be boring. Now, some of you sitting here right now, you're exploring Christianity. We're super glad you're here. Some of you have this mentality in the back of your main, if, brain. If there's a hell, man, that's where I want to go because that's where the party scene is. So it's just going to be one big club. It's going to be eternal. It's going to be great. It's going to be the devil and he, ru he rules down there. That's what's in our brains from medieval art, that the devil is sovereign over hell. 
He's running a party and heaven's this cleaned up place where everyone's sitting around looking like they got their shirts tucked in. Hello, I'm just wondering about, hey, and it's just a bunch of type A losers with blackberries. So, 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 is that, is that what it's gonna be? The problem is no. What you just heard was fire and sulfur, which are these metaphorical images of God's judgment, not necessarily literal fire, but it's psychological, emotional, spiritual. It may be literal, we don't know, but oftentimes these images are pointing not towards something being actually lighter, but being heavier. And here's an image from the book of Revelation that takes up some of these images and it fights against and comes back to what we were talking about earlier about who's in control. He says um, in, in chapter 14, Verse uh, 10, he, meaning someone who hasn't believed in Christ and followed Jesus with their life, will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. This is what it is. It's painful. It's real. So I don't want to pretend hell's not real. I know we don't talk about hell every sermon, but when this stuff comes up in the text, I just want to be real with you. This isn't a theology that gets to go away because it's 2020. There's fire and there's sulfur and there's literal hell to pay because of sin. We have sinned against an infinite, eternal, holy God and there will be an eternity to pay for it. And then listen to this crazy thing. And I guarantee this is gonna mess with some of your theology. And that's why I bring it up because that's what I like to do, right? Listen, some of you think that this is the way you describe hell. Hell is the place where God isn't present, where God's not there. It's the place in the universe kind of where God isn't there. He's not, and the devil's there, and sin is there. Here's a crazy verse to mess with you. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur. Check this. In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. What? Jesus reigns even over hell. Jesus, the slain lamb, is sovereign even over the fact of God's judgment. And so listen, here's what this psalm's trying to tell us. There's two types of people in the world. There's two types of people and the fate of everyone who's ever lived is one of these two types of people. One type, I understand that Jesus Christ has done what he's done. I don't want any part of it. I don't want to surrender my life to him. I just want to be myself. And here's the judgment in the end. His soul hates the wicked, the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals in the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. The cup of God's wrath will actually hit you. And then there's a second group of people. You know, when Jesus is sitting in the garden in Gethsemane, he prays to God and he says, can someone else take this cup? But then he goes to the cross and he drinks it. What is the cup? It's the cup of God's wrath. See, there's two types of people. People who let Jesus drink the cup for them and take the suffering for them and people who don't, people who reject it. And the wave hits them instead of Jesus for them. I come from a family. I come from a background and upbringing where nobody wanted Jesus to drink the cup for them. 
they thought they could drink it for themselves. And so my dad, to my knowledge, he passed away when I was 15, never knew Jesus. <clears throat> Hell is not some hypothetical doctrine is what I'm trying to tell you. It's my family. The judgment of God is not something that I love to talk about because it's personal for me. It's people I love. And the reality is you can sit here and think you're philosophically smarter than the Bible and drink your latte and read one or two books on philosophy and think you're so great and you're so powerful that you're gonna outwit God or you're gonna be able to have a good excuse when you get to the judgment seat of God. As C.S. Lewis says though, guys, listen, you're not gonna be able to wiggle out of this by citing some books or talking about how your neighbor didn't love you. In the end, this is you and him. And he's either gonna look at you through your own life and the great things that you did and the failures that you did and judge you and the wrath of God is gonna hit you or it's gonna hit Jesus in your place. Those are the only two options. And so, Father, my prayer is that we are humble enough people. Anybody listening to my voice right now would humble their soul and their heart and their mind and actually receive the forgiveness of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you drank this cup. Thank you that you had a passion, a suffering for us. And Jesus, I pray now that whatever pain and suffering is in our lives, the people who are listening to this, the people at Village Church, the pain, the suffering, the difficulty, that we would be able to, to, to understand that while you, you might not have brought it directly into our life, you have a purpose for it. And the purpose isn't to punish us for sin, it's to examine and test us so that we become who you are trying to make us. You are trying to stamp the signature of Jesus on our life. Let us have the courage. Let us have the humility to receive it so that other people see Jesus in us and then receive him. Do that work among us, Lord, as we seek you as we desire you above all things. Thank you that the gospel is true and that religion is not. Thank you that we know we can't earn it, but you earned it for us, Jesus. Let us rest and worship in light of that accomplishment. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen.